Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay with our second episode on the situation in Ukraine. This time, our guest is Shmuel Barr, a veteran of the Israeli intelligence community and a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's also the author of our recently published Quillette article, Deterrence After Ukraine, which will be the subject of our conversation. Specifically, we talk about what Russian leader Vladimir Putin wants, how NATO might have tried to prevent him from getting it, and how the Ukrainian military is getting a big part of the deterrence job done without the West's help. We also talk about why Putin got the war so wrong, and whether it's a function of this autocrat being lied to by the same lackeys who promised him they could conquer Ukraine in a matter of days. And what happens now that the war has basically become a stalemate? Will Putin try to take Donbass, the more Russian-friendly breakaway region in eastern Ukraine, as a sort of consolation prize? Or will the war grind on for months or even years? These are the questions I asked this week's guest, Shmuel Bar. You're in Israel. We're in this strange geopolitical situation where the Israeli prime minister was playing, and maybe is still playing, some kind of diplomatic role. Uh, how did that emerge? Uh, I think it's rather simple. Putin, after invading, couldn't summon any senior European leader or American leader come to Moscow and, and be a mediator. He couldn't accept anybody who is of a lesser rank to be a mediator. Uh, he, of course, couldn't go anywhere. And Bennett, Naftali Bennett, being Israeli, on good terms with Zelensky, and you know we have our relations with uh, Russia because of uh, because Russia is basically our neighbor in the north. Russia has military forces in Syria, and we have agreements with Russia which allow us to take out Iranian targets in Syria. So he had that leverage over Bennett to say to him, he invited Bennett, and he said, "Come and be a negotiator." Now I'm not sure that he really wanted negotiating at that point. He wanted to send ultimatums, etc. But what he did want was that there would be somebody who would be able to carry the ladder if and when he would need the ladder. However, uh, I think they were far past that point. In other words, uh, Bennett did pass on uh, messages to Zelensky and back to Putin, etc. But it was very clear that Putin's message to Zelensky was unconditional surrender, nothing less than that. He he actually never moved in that. And uh, Israel had an interest in being in that role, because as long as we're in that role, Russia isn't going to change its position towards us regarding our military actions in Syria, which are important for us in order to, to disrupt the Iranian buildup in Syria. Now, in the light of the negotiations between the United States and Syria uh, and Iran, it became even more important. This is why when Bennett went to Moscow, the people he took with him are all people whose expertise are dealing with the Syrian-Iranian uh, issues. Your article is titled Deterrence After Ukraine. Something that surprised me is that if the war were to end tomorrow, it won't, but if it were to end tomorrow, 
to my mind, the greatest force for deterrence in terms of preventing Putin or his successor from attacking Ukraine or perhaps the Baltic states or Poland in the future is the, for many of us, surprising defensive capacity of Ukraine. Look, deterrence is a matter of cost-benefit. The costs have been enormous for the Russians. Yeah, yeah, but, but it's, it's enormous for an American. It's not enormous for a Russian. The problem with the entire Western and particularly the American mirror imaging is that you think that if I were to lose 15,000 people in one month, then that would be devastating. That would be a defeat, and I'd be looking for an exit strategy. Okay? But that's American way of thinking. That's Western way of thinking. Putin made, he miscalculated. He didn't miscalculate the West, by the way. He miscalculated the Ukrainians. Uh, he, the West, he was right. The West would impose sanctions. The sanctions were something that he was willing to accept as a price for being Vladimir the Great, who will go down in history as having reunited Russia, brought Ukraine back into Mother Russia, and restored the grandeur of the Russian Empire. So he said, I will endure the sanctions, I will lose however many men I'm going to lose, but the benefit here is greater, okay? So from his point of view, there was nothing that the West said to him which would deter him. Now, he wasn't deterred by Ukraine because uh, here you have a sort of a vicious circle of the leader in an autocratic uh, regime says he is sure that the Ukrainians want Russia to come back, okay? So he funds enormous amounts of money for all sorts of uh, apparatuses and mechanisms to do uh, psychological warfare and disinformation and public influence uh, in Ukraine. Because he spent so much money and so much resources on that, he's sure that it had some effect. When he comes to the same intelligence agencies who are in charge of this sort of subversion activity. And he says, how is it going? They say, they said to him, 80% of the Ukrainians are going to line the street when you march down the street. It's going to be an Anschluss. In other words, this isn't going to be Poland in 1939. It's going to be Austria in 1938. So based on that, he said, the price is low. It's almost no price. Now, the other thing that he miscalculated was the capabilities of the Russian army, because the Russian army is extremely corrupt. Everybody who knows the Russian army knows that. The funding that goes into the Russian army doesn't trickle down to the bottom. And everybody knows that except the president, because who's going to tell him that? So uh, the problem wasn't that he wasn't irrational and he wasn't just not deterred. He was acting on a very rational basis where there was no message of deterrence which he could believe. The level of violence that you have to threaten somebody in order for him to desist from what he's doing has to be much greater than the level of violence you threatened in order to prevent him from doing it because he's already invested, right? So he's already invested. And if he retreats now, he sees it could be the end of his presidency. It's a debacle. To leave without getting at least Donbass is to admit defeat. Even if he now recalibrates his war aims and says, you know what, this was a war about Donbass, this was a war about these eastern areas in Ukraine that have many Russian speakers and where there was separatist agitation, how does he then retroactively justify deploying tens of thousands of troops and a gigantic armored column against Kiev? How does he rewrite that story? 
Yeah, uh, he's already done that. The Russian uh, general staff has already explained that the attacks on the other Ukrainian cities, which are not in Donbass, were in order to occupy the Ukrainian army so that it won't interfere with the Russian activities. So it's a diversionary. That's that's quite a diversion. No, it's ridiculous. But no, you have to understand that. I mean, this is sort of neo-Soviet. You know, I mean, you say something which nobody believes and everybody knows is a lie, but you accept it because there's no there's no way of checking the truth. Most Russians don't even know what's going on there. The failure of intelligence, it strikes me as particularly egregious because when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, there are many completely bilingual speakers. Much of Ukrainian media is in Russian. Social media seems to go back and forth. That is the way autocratic regimes work. You surround yourself for years with yes-men. You fund people in order to to come back with the result. They can't tell you that they didn't succeed. They won't feed you information that may upset you or cause but you Putin to... Putin was himself was one of those apparatchiks. He knows how the system works. No, 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 you're wrong. Putin was a counterintelligence officer. He did not deal in actual intelligence collection in other words, positive intelligence or political intelligence. He was a counterintelligence officer. His his target wasn't the outside enemy. His target were traitors within the KGB or within the apparatuses or within the state. I mean, Putin doesn't come from that particular discipline where somebody like Primakov, for example, was. Ever since COVID, he's also been meeting with far less people. Uh, somebody even from within the regime who wanted to speak with Putin would have to have to go into quarantine for 10 days before he could meet with Putin. He went into a sort of bunker mentality. The number of people who can push files to him gets smaller and smaller. And he prefers the files by the FSB. And it's the same FSB who he funded in order to deliver Ukraine and to deliver Belarus. So this is a successor agency to the KGB? Yeah, yeah. So, so when you think about it, there is a dynamic within an autocratic organization. I'm not comparing, you know, the Ukrainians call uh, Putin Putler, uh, Putin, Putin Hitler, you know, but I'm not doing that equation. Nevertheless, look at what happened to Hitler in his last days. Until about three, four days before he committed suicide, he still thought that his armies were fighting in Belgium and in France, etc., because nobody dared to tell him, uh, Mein Führer, uh, they've all surrendered. These armies, and he was moving these armies on a sandbox when everybody around him knew that the armies didn't exist, but they, were, they couldn't tell him that. And that's the way an autocratic regime works. The thing is that he doesn't have an exit strategy because any exit strategy on the national level would also mean a very humiliating exit for him as president because he has put all of his all of his weight into this. Uh, he has to come back with something. He has to say, I reunited Donbass with uh, Russia. If he can't do that, and let's remember that the Ukrainians, with their successes, and despite all of the suffering, and I see this in the social media, my company, technological company, which does monitoring now of the social media in the Ukraine and and what you see there is that people are saying, by no means whatsoever will we agree to any compromise or with, uh, to any concessions. So Putin 
can't get what he wants, even if they negotiate and Zelensky says, I agree to give up Donbass, it won't help him because he'll have to, by law, he'll have to put that to a plebiscite and he'll lose the plebiscite. So Putin can't get that. So he realizes that if he can't get that, then he has failed. If he has failed, he may find himself under the continuing sanctions, getting weaker and weaker. And at one point or another, there may be some sort of constellation of people who will try to get rid of him. Now, by the way, you may notice there are very few cases of retired autocrats. There are incumbent autocrats and there are dead autocrats. You don't have, <laughs> you don't have the retired autocrat. Idi Amin Dada, who had refuge in Saudi Arabia, okay. Uh, you know, but really, for the most part... Smith in Zimbabwe. Yeah, but he, he left with an agreement. I mean, Ceausescu was executed with all of his family. You know, Gaddafi, Gaddafi. In other words, you can't retire to your dacha. So he knows that. So it's now the price he would have to pay for compromise maybe in his eyes, his power, his place in history, and his life. Do you think Donbass will be a big enough booby prize to save himself domestically, politically? Uh, he'll try to leverage it that way. He's already trying. This is the meaning of the uh, redefinition of the goals of the, of the campaign. The problem is that within a week or so, we're going to see far more problems of command and control, supplies, logistics, fighting on the Russian side. I've seen reports, which are genuine, where they're actually taking pictures of taking videos of a Russian tank company where they tell them surrender. And then they all raise their hands, they get off the tanks, and then they say, put your weapons here, start walking into the direction of Russia. And the Ukrainians are posting these things. You have people, the young 18, 19 year olds, they didn't know they were going to fight. They thought they were on an exercise. They don't, they don't have supplies. They don't have food. They don't have ammunition. The other thing is that their reserves, their whole system of reserves is rotten. You don't take people who did a token training of one week and then got a salary for being in the reserves and you call them up and you take them all and you create a tank brigade or a tank division. You don't do that. It doesn't work. So the Russia needs some time out, some sort of low intensity tactical ceasefires that they'll call humanitarian. So they'll keep fighting, but they'll try to lower the intensity enough for them to be able to bring in additional forces to increase the conscription, to increase training, to bring in reserve forces. So we're talking about a war that's going to continue for quite a few months, I mean, maybe a year or so. And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So let me ask you whether any of this sounds familiar. Headaches, teeth grinding, stomach pain, doom scrolling on your phone, insomnia, compulsive overeating or undereating. Of course, we all have bad habits and aches and pains we'd like to shake, but sometimes they're a sign that you might need to talk to someone about what's going on in your life. I try to take care of my own stress with reading, board gaming, and sports, but I know from experience that self-care can only do so much, and sometimes you need to talk to a professional. Which is what BetterHelp is about. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. 
Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. You make the distinction between two types of deterrence, deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment. Could you talk about the distinction between those two in the context of the Ukraine conflict? Deterrence by denial, it's all cost-benefit, okay? If you say, I have a capability to launch 100 missiles at the target, but after I launched 100 missiles at the target, the target has been hit by two missiles because only 2% went through the defenses. So it's not worth it because the benefit I got hitting two targets is not comparable to the price which I'm paying, which is the price for having fired 100 missiles, okay? That's deterrence by denial. Yeah, so, so you actually say to them, listen, you know that you can't really cause me damage. You, you know that you can't. Uh, so why try? So it's Iron Dome type thing. Yeah, uh, right. And then you go into a sort of ritual, okay? So every once in a while they fire, they know they're going to be shot down, okay? But it's good for propaganda, etc. So you go into a sort of, you know, ritual like that. The thing is that deterrence by denial is only relevant when it is applied by the country, which is a target. The United States in, in the era of the Cold War said to the Soviet Union, we have civilian defense, civil defense, we have anti-ballistic missiles, we can prevent you from causing a lot of damage. At the same time, because we have prevented you from causing a lot of damage, we have second strike because you haven't been able to hit our forces. And therefore, after you have failed to cause us a lot of damage, we can cause you even more damage, okay? Which is punishment. So if you are talking about a second strike, then deterrence by punishment uh, actually is contingent on having been able to succeed in deterrence by denial. Or if you failed in deterrence by denial, you have to have the ability to present a credible deterrence by punishment. When you talk about Putin's motivation, the stakes are existential, meaning that unless Putin succeeds in Ukraine, his career is over, the story of his life is rewritten as one of, of failure and disgrace, he's set Russia back while gaining nothing. Does the idea of cost-benefit analysis, and therefore the idea of rational deterrence, can that apply to a person who sees the world in apocalyptic terms? It's still rational. It's still rational. The data set, the data set that your rationality is applied to is different. Okay? Take, for example, you know, when the American army was fighting the Sioux Indians, they said they were irrational. Here they're coming at us in hordes, even though they know that we have guns and we can shoot them, etc. And then it turned out that the Sioux Indians had ghost shirts that their shamans would give them. And they thought that they were invisible. So actually, in their eyes, there was no reason to be deterred by the Americans because the Americans couldn't see them. The data set that you apply your rationality to is critical to understanding the rationality. Irrationality is that you know for certain that you are going to fail. You know that what you are about to do is counterproductive to your goal. 
And nevertheless, you do it. But if you don't know that, Putin didn't know that. At no point did Putin know that his army was a sham. At no point did he know that the Ukrainian army was stronger. Uh, he didn't know that. But in terms of going forward, in terms of a possible possible NATO involvement, for, for the West to exercise muscular forms of deterrence and, and help Ukraine, might it be possible that because Putin sees the world in such apocalyptic terms, he may take that as a pretext to ignite a truly nightmare conflict with the West? which would be rational to no human except a person who sees the world in apocalyptic terms. Uh, Putin isn't apocalyptic per se. Putin wants to stay alive and he wants to remain the leader of Russia. And slowly but surely he's going to realize that he failed, but he also realizes that he has no exit strategy. I don't see Putin saying, okay, the hell with it. I'm going to press the button. That I don't see. And the moment he tried to play with this uh, nuclear brinkmanship, and after some time, the Ministry of Defense, the Russian Ministry of Defense said that as well known, the Russian military doctrine determines that uh, nuclear weapons will only be used when there is an existential threat to Russia. Okay, so they did climb down a little bit that particular ladder. Having said that, the legitimacy of use of chemical weapons, which basically America gave when they accepted the, the Syrian chemical weapons, the agreement with Syria. So I, th I think that that is more of a possibility. But the thing is that chemical weapons aren't really good at actual fighting. They strike terror. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mark Twain said, thunder is great, thunder is impressive, but it's lightning that does the job. I think, though, that we're looking at NATO has been exposed as a true paper tiger. And since it's been exposed on the United States and since the U.S. and NATO have been exposed as a paper tiger, I think that the spillover effect is going to be the questioning by, well, in the Far East, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, whether they can actually uh, really be sure of the American umbrella. So what should NATO have done? I hear this casually claim that says NATO has been exposed, NATO this, NATO that. Ukraine isn't a NATO country. Uh, let, let's put aside the formalism of Article 5. Okay, We're not talking about the formalism of Article 5, that it's not a NATO country. The question is whether or not an invasion of Ukraine was an existential threat or a critical threat or a strategic threat to NATO. NATO isn't restricted to Article 5. NATO has acted in the past not within Article 5. They acted not within Article 5 in uh, the Korean War, in the Middle East. In Kosovo. Yeah, in Kosovo. They can act not within Article 5. So tell, so tell me what they should have done. NATO should have declared that it will provide all types of arms to Ukraine to meet the threat of, of a Russian invasion. And that as long as Russia does not invade, then NATO will restrain itself in the types of weapons it's going to provide. But the moment Russia invades, and by doing that ignites a crisis in all of Europe, then all bets are off and NATO will provide Ukraine with everything it needs in order to counterattack, which uh, counterattack you can't do with defensive means, you need offensive means. Okay? So that's the first thing I think they should have said. Secondly, by no means should the President of the United States have said, we will not fight Russia. 
and he said it three times in an uh, interview, this is ridiculous. Even if you aren't going to fight Russia, don't say three times, I'm not, we're not going to fight Russia. And don't say that in the light of the threat, we have deployed additional forces in Estonia because Estonia is in the theater, right? So when you look at it from Russia, they say, hey, you know, we are going to invade Ukraine and the Americans are putting forces in Estonia. It made the whole American policy look like somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. Now, there was the NATO summit. At the end of the NATO summit, the president of the United States says, the most important thing was that NATO maintained its unity. I think that he sort of mixed up the goal and the means. The goal of NATO, NATO was born in order to deter the Soviet Union, later on Russia, from doing things which harm the interests of those countries. The means are to deploy a significant conventional and non-conventional force so that Russia will know, the Soviet Union will know, that if you try to invade or do anything which harms NATO, uh, NATO countries, then we have the ability to respond. And therefore, we have deterrence, capability-based deterrence. The unity is just a condition, a necessary condition for application of the force. So the goal of NATO, you don't go to a NATO summit and say, the most important thing is that we maintained unity. The most important thing is that you have maintained your deterrence or that you have presented a plan in order to roll back the Russian invasion, or but to say that we maintained unity on a lowest common denominator basis. Uh, when you look at it from Russia, they're saying, hey, the most important thing for them is to maintain unity. They can't maintain unity with Germany on one hand and France and America. And quite correctly, they read the trends in the United States where nobody wants to fight. Nobody wants intervention. And now a message from another podcast I think you're going to like, The Lost Debate. This is a podcast for people who are tired of living in a media bubble and who aren't scared of views that challenge their own. The Lost Debate is a podcast and YouTube show for political eclectics who seek exposure to a diversity of different beliefs and perspectives. It covers the latest news, ideas, and trends without any kind of bias or spin. It's an alternative to the mainstream media but not so alternative that it spins out into marginal territory. And it's got three hosts, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and school principal who fought Republicans at the ballot box, and then, plot twist, fought alongside Republicans for charter schools. Plus, Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who used to host a Fox News radio show. And Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian who shares my own passion for free speech. They all have different viewpoints, but they come together for debates that sound less like crossfire and more like constructive discussions among real people. Join the conversation by checking out The Lost Debate. New episodes appear every Tuesday and Thursday, and you can find them on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. And now back to our own Quillette podcast. Do you think we're on the cusp of seeing a prolonged insurgent, maybe even terrorist campaign within Ukrainian territory against Russian occupiers? In the areas where the Russians are occupied, they will be subject to escalating guerrilla, insurgency, etc. I think it will spill over to attacks on Russian embassies abroad, because that's what happens in these cases. 
the more vicious the uh, Russian attacks are in Ukraine, then the more you're going to have people who have lost their families, etc. I think that the East European countries, the frontline countries, are very disappointed with NATO, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, etc. And I think that they realize that they are the low-hanging fruit after Ukraine, that if Ukraine falls, they're next in line. And therefore, they will do everything they can in order to bolster the Ukrainian resistance, including to allow Ukrainian resistance to come in and out of those countries and to supply them and to give them logistic centers, etc. Russia will then have to either ignore that, in other words, to allow them to come in and out with impunity, which is going to be very difficult for Russia because they want to deter the East European states from doing that, or they are going to have to retaliate inside those countries. The moment Russia retaliates against those countries, then there has been a Russian attack on NATO. So the entire question of Article 5 becomes relevant again. Dr. Shmuel Barr is CEO of InchuView Limited and adjunct senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Before that, he served for 30 years in the Israeli intelligence community. For more information, go to intuview.com. That's I-N-T-U-V-I-E-W. Dr. Barr, thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you very much. Let's hope for better days. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.